Hi, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. Welcome back to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. In this episode, titled Madani, Prosperity or a Pipe Dream, we have the privilege of hosting Mr. Alan In, who currently serves as a Deputy CEO in CGS CIMB Securities Malaysia. But before we dive into our discussion with Mr. Allen, let's take a look at some of the latest news and trends focusing on venture capital markets around the world and in Malaysia with our colleague Iman. So kick back, chill out and let's get started. Hi, I'm Iman. I'm an analyst of Penjana Capital. Today, we will be covering the global venture capital market dynamics heading into the second half of 2023. During the second quarter of 2023, the global venture capital market remained subdued due to the prevailing uncertainty in the global economy. The cautious mood among VCs was largely attributed to geopolitical tensions, high inflation and the potential for further interest rate hikes. As we look ahead into the second half of 2023, the market's performance in the later half of the year is expected to remain uncertain. Nonetheless, the existing environment is expected to pose ongoing challenges for VCs. Factors such as the persistent geopolitical challenges, lack of confidence in exit strategies, ongoing ambiguity about the global economic state, and the possibility of future interest rate hikes all contribute to the potential for another downturn in VC investments moving into the second half. While investors exercise caution, the occurrence of noteworthy deals indicated that the market is still receptive to promising opportunities. Companies such as Stripe, Sheen and Inflection raised significant amounts of capital signifying that VCs remain willing to invest in companies that demonstrate strong fundamentals and a clear path to profitability. In quarter 3, 2023, the Malaysian government announced that it is steering the country into a major economic transformation with the introduction of the Madani Economic Framework. This comprehensive plan aims to restructure the country's economy with a focus on rejuvenating the industrial sector. The economic plan aims to create better paying jobs, positioning Malaysia as a global investment hub and making the nation more environmentally friendly and climate resilient. Improved physical governance and transparency are also on the agenda, boosting confidence among investors and credit rating agencies. Key initiatives include the new Industrial Master Plan 2030, the National Energy Transition Roadmap, and the Fiscal Responsibility Act. In short, these plans are expected to provide crucial support for Malaysia's economic growth. We will be delving into this topic further in this podcast, so please tune in to the interview with Mr. Alan In up next. But before that, let's hear some fun facts from my colleague Ilyas. 
Before we jump right into the interview with Mr. Allen, here are a few fun facts on Malaysia's past and current economic policies. Do you know that Malaysia's new economic policy, or NEP for short, which was formed as part of the second Malaysia plan in the aftermath of the 13th May 1969 racial riots, had a two-pronged approach? The first prong was to improve the access to all forms of capital to improve economic condition and quality of life of the poor of all races, with the end goal of reducing poverty. The second prong was to encourage a fairer distribution of wealth among the races to address the widening wealth inequality among races, arising from the compartmentalization of racial groups by economic function, which led to the racial riots and hampered national unity. Comparing the NEP with today's Madani framework, we can see a few similarities. The Madani framework has various objectives for the country, which includes growing the Malaysian economy, suffering from premature deindustrialization by leveraging on greater regionalization and competitiveness, prioritizing economic complexity, and moving up the value chain. Additionally, Madani strives to promote equal access to opportunities from the nation's prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or background, especially to those who are marginalized. This goes to show how despite over half a century later, Malaysia's priority is still on adapting to the demands of a highly globalized economy to create economic prosperity, while at the same time bridging wealth inequality. Welcome back to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Um, today, I'm your new host, Ming, and we have with us uh, Mr. Alan In Weilun, who's the Deputy CEO of CGS CIMB Malaysia, um, to come to, to be with us to talk about the Madani economy framework uh, and how it will spur the economy to drive more significant industry growth and improve the livelihoods of uh, Malaysians. Um, so, Alan, thanks for being on the show with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Uh, pleasure to be here and looking forward to have this conversation. Yeah, um, very glad to have you. Um, so, usually we just jump straight into the questions, uh, since the podcast is pretty short. So, um, we won't talk about uh, the framework itself and just jump straight in to the first question, which is, um, do you think that the Madani framework sufficiently addresses the issues of raising Malaysia's GDP to be above that of its Southeast Asian peers, as well as enlarging the wealth of its people? Um, if so, how? If not, what are some of the gaps that you think need to be addressed? I think the Madani framework is a very good attempt by the present government to address some of the structural issues that the country has been facing for quite a number of years now. I understand the emphasis is on restructuring the economy to grow the country's wealth and at the same time to ensure social justice so that the wealth can be distributed equitably among the Rakyat. So among the initiatives, the key pillar is to raise the ceiling and to raise the floor so that the framework would allow for the economy pie to grow and at the same time to spread that out to uh, the rakyat. Now if you look at the, the size of the Malaysia economy at this present moment, uh, it is currently at about 330 billion US dollars in terms of the annual uh, GDP. Uh, we are currently at about number 37 globally mm. in terms of the ranking uh, uh, by economic size. 
And if you compare ourselves to our neighbours like uh, Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam and Singapore, uh, even Vietnam is, uh, has grown quite, quite a fair bit and their size now is equivalent to Malaysia. Uh, we don't unfortunately have the advantage of a very big population compared mm. to our neighbours like Thailand, uh, Vietnam yeah. and of course yep. Indonesia. So we have to do our game quite differently. So for, in terms of the uh, Madani framework, I understand that apart from raising the ceiling and raising the floor, the key pillar is also to increase productivity. So I think in terms of uh, the gaps that we need to, to cover here, uh, it is clearly to grow our economy at a faster rate. So if you look at the historical growth rates of uh, Malaysia's GDP growth, uh, it has actually been trending downwards in the last uh, 30 years. So, so I, I uh, started in this industry in the 90s. So I was uh, fortunate to see the kind of growth that we had then uh, in the order of 8 odd percent per annum. And we trended down to 6%, then down to 5% in the uh, pre-COVID days. And right now it looks like we are trending towards the 4% level. And in fact, IMF is saying that we could be looking at about 3.7% uh, GDP growth in the next uh, the few years post-COVID. So in our situation, I, I know that Madani is targeting a 55 to 6% growth. And uh, therefore, to get to that level, which is a, a, a gap, an increase in gap, or rather, uh, there's a gap of about 2% between, between 4% and 6%, the aspiration yep. target, that will require us to be a lot more productive. And just my final point then before I, I take a pause and pass back to Ming is that if you look at the, the economy, the growth has largely been driven by consumption growth in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. The exports, unfortunately, in recent times have uh, uh, moderated off, yeah. somewhat. And our, our exports as a percentage of GDP has also moderated to a lower level over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. The one that we could grow a lot faster is in the area of investment. So investment as a proportion of GDP is running at about uh, 20 odd percent. Uh, that compares to 30% to 35% for Indonesia, same level for Vietnam as well. Even Thailand is running at a higher rate as a proportion of GDP at about 25 to 30%. So Malaysia is at 20%. Uh, average, the last 20 years has been about 25 to 30%. So it's trended down. And the key now is to get the investment growth upwards. And by doing that, with productivity as well, productivity gain, our GDP growth can go up to the 6% level. It is going to be a tall order, not easy. A lot of things that need to be done to bring more investments into the country. And I can certainly cover some of those uh, uh, measures that can be taken uh, later. Yep. I think um, very, very importantly also in the uh, Madani framework is that a lot, I think one of the focus that, that, um, that the government wanted to put on emphasize on was on the 
um, domestic investments, right? In in addition to just uh, attracting foreign foreign investments, do you think um, in the current state that we are, uh, is it a problem of uh, there being lack a lack of opportunities in the, um, in the country for investments, or is it a lack of uh, confidence in the economy? Um, because we do have uh, a lot of. You know, you mentioned we we are in the top forty uh, GDP wise in the world, which actually is is no small feat, right? Um, uh, it actually puts us in the top uh, somewhere in the top quartile of of the world. But we're trying to get to top thirty yeah. in the Madani framework by uh, uh, in ten years' time. Yeah. Well, what do you think the what do you think the cause of this um, lack of investments is? Or rather, the declining. Um, it's rate a very of good question, actually. So, so since the the Asian crisis in nineteen ninety eight, our domestic investment level has been trending down. Uh, if you look at the recent foreign investment or FDIs into Malaysia, we are running at about uh, ten billion US dollars, depending on what data you look at. And and if you compare that to, for example, Vietnam, Vietnam is uh, fifteen billion US dollars. We are ten, and uh, even even uh, Indonesia is running at double that, which is twenty billion US dollars. So we've we've not been getting as much FDIs compared to our neighboring countries. Of course, domestic investment is the other uh, important source of uh, investment, right, to, to to grow the economy. And when we speak to some of our corporate clients, we hear certain comments like, uh, "Sure, they can bring." their funds or their investments back from overseas into Malaysia, what do I invest in? That's the common question asked, right? And so I think a few things need to be looked into. Number one, the political and the investment climate needs to be supportive of uh, new investments. Secondly, the environment also needs to support the environment also needs to support uh, the building up of ecosystems in either new industries that we're trying to get into or the deepening of uh, ecosystems in our existing uh, industries like for example semicon which is a very big industry of, of uh, Malaysia, right? So when I talk about ecosystem, I mean basically the vertical uh, integration of various players to basically produce a service or a product. And that in itself requires different players coming in. We need diversity. We need, for example, relook at our immigration policies. Our, even our, obviously our investment policies with regards to getting foreign investments in where we don't have the technology and the know-how, then with that partnership with the domestic players, you create an ecosystem. So right now, Malaysia is, is uh, obviously strong in ecosystems or industries such as semicon, plantations, oil and gas. But if we want to move into new areas like AI or EV, what do we, what do, we do? So, so that, that is the second point that I'm touching on. The, the third is fundraising for, for such uh, investments. So 
we all know that the government's fiscal position is has been um, challenged, to say the least, and there there won't be a lot of funds coming through the uh, uh, government side, and that's where the private sector needs to come up with the the the, the funding, right? So if you look at how Bursa Malaysia has performed, for example, uh, I think most people from my industry would agree that it, it has actually underperformed uh, quite a fair bit in terms of the performance of the, the stocks listed on Bursa Malaysia vis-a-vis markets like the US, even vis-a-vis regional markets. Even in the, in the IPO fundraising space on Bursa, uh, it has also hasn't been that great. So to my point there on, on Bursa, can we look at making Bursa a hub for ASEAN listing? So we all know that there is a confluence of, of uh, uh, factors which could create an, an ASEAN era, uh, so to speak, from geopolitics, uh, concerns between the US and China, and ASEAN is a neutral region in the, in, in the right location. There will be a lot of companies basically looking for growth opportunities in ASEAN, new and existing companies, and there will be a lot of demand for funds, private capital. Can we raise some of this in Malaysia from Bursa for Malaysian companies wanting to expand into ASEAN as well as for non-Malaysian companies that do business in ASEAN to be located on uh, Bursa? So if we can create this, we can then talk to our Malaysian companies Malaysian businessmen and or any women to bring their funds back into Malaysia to invest in, uh, in such companies, right? And then, of, of course, we can then go and talk to institutional funds, including the clicks, the government-linked investment funds, to bring more of their investments from outside Malaysia back into Malaysia to basically uh, fund this uh, opportunity. So there's, there's a lot that we can do. So if you if you can get this going, you can then uh, fire up the investment part of the uh, the GDP equation, and we can then hit towards potentially the five and a half to the six percent level. Um, thanks for that. I think um, uh, in relation to that, also perhaps maybe taking a look more at the uh, the tax and the incentives that uh, that are being planned out as part of the framework. Um, what are your views in terms of uh, whether these tax uh, incentives and financial plans uh, are able to help shape the uh, Malaysian economy in the in the way that you've just uh, you've just uh, described? Um, which are the key tax incentives and new initiatives that you think are the most urgent and likely to be the most impactful? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Ming. So I think that that is a very important question. Basically, given the government's uh, lack of ability to pump prime. Uh, one way to basically encourage the growth on the private sector side is to basically do it through the tax incentive way. So there's one particular uh, tax which uh, we hope that it can be relooked into, which is the foreign source income uh, tax. Uh, if we want Malaysians to bring their monies back to fund some of these uh, potential investment opportunities, we should look at uh, the FSI tax that we have committed ourselves to. Maybe we can relook at that. Uh, the other area is if you look at 
for a for a company or for even an individual today taking loans, simple thing, right? You take loans if it's to be used for productive capacity. You have to pay stamp duty of zero point five percent on the loan amount. We don't have this in the neighboring countries, but we have. This is unique to Malaysia, and it increases the cost of uh, borrowing and the cost of financing for companies. So that perhaps can be relooked into as well. Um, and of course, in terms of uh, other tax incentives, we can look at like if we want to move our workforce uh, up to the to be more productive. Uh, we 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 are aware that there's the progressive wage model. That has been recently announced, although it's voluntary. So the question is, how do we make it enticing for the for companies to adopt PWM? And one of the ways is to uh, provide tax incentive for for companies to uh, that 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 adopt this, right? And so for for CGS, for example, we will be open to doing that if uh, we yeah, can uh, incentive give a tax incentive <laughs> right to, to right. do that so it's a win win right for 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 the for the people for mm. the companies as well as for the government because over i mean if you look at the PWM you're talking about basically raising wages in anticipation of uh, productivity gains so there's no guarantee that there will be productivity gains but we raise the wages first so and it's voluntary, right? So make, giving tax incentive that would be good. Other tax incentives we can consider are like uh, obviously the the more traditional uh, aspects like R and D, uh, investment tax uh, to and also SME support and even green energy incentives and of course digital uh, transformation incentives. So at CGS we 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 are actually spending tens of millions of ringgit uh, in the next three to five years. For example, to go to the cloud, to do uh, big data uh, analytics, and to also renew our trading uh, technologies. So all this requires a lot of investments into area of uh, automation, but we've, we've, we don't benefit at all from uh, uh, these investments that we undertake. So if there is... Uh, it, tax incentive to 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 provide to the industry not just us but generally to companies that go into the area of uh, AI or automation that would be an added incentive for companies to upgrade their 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 uh, processes or their systems agreed, agreed. yeah i think um on that note actually uh there's a small portion of that already in the market, right? I'm not sure if you're you're aware. Um, where MDEC is giving out a digitalization grant for for SMEs that are or smaller companies that are um, uh, looking to uh, imp- upgrade or improve their their operations with uh, digitalization and technology. Um, so that's in a way a small part of the avenue that's already available. Um, any I, I, I think also to the point about uh, tax incentive, right? It's easy to to obviously ask the government give us yeah. give us more incentives. Yeah. On the other hand, I think we should also look at fiscal consolidation because the the large budget deficit year in year out since 1998 doesn't help in terms of uh, allowing government to hit. The, the space, the financial space to put more monies into development, 
and to do the things that they want to, right? So I think the government should consider bringing back GST. Uh, I know it's a very controversial subject, but it will be good for the country long term. And uh, there is also a, a need to move away from tax regimes like capital gains tax. Because if we want to encourage investors to invest in Malaysian growth, to fund companies in Malaysia, including the ones from ASEAN listed in Malaysia, we, 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 don't, we don't need a capital gains tax. I think that would be a big negative for uh, uh, private capital owners. Yeah, and we should also obviously look at the removal of uh, subsidies as we, we just we spend too much on subsidies as a country. Agreed. I think on the on the capital gains tax side, um, it's also something that uh, in in my own in my own head that I've been thinking about. Right. Um, whilst good that to not have it in order to to spur more um, uh, risk capital uh, activity. Um, at the same time, we are also we are also in this kind of a uh, dichotomy where we, where we're trying to increase taxes on the on the personal income side as well, um, but knowing that the actually the, the salaries of uh, Malaysian uh, workers are not really that not really that high, right? Average uh, is two two thousand yeah. ringgit a yeah. month. Yeah. Um, yeah. So really. If the government wanted to to kind of improve the fiscal position, the source of income is more likely to come from the capital side uh, or rather the corporate side than the than the individual side. I'm not sure what the right what the right solution here is. Um, hopefully, hopefully we see something good in the the next budget and the and the review of the, the midterm review of the RMK12. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe move on to the following question. Um, so, the Madani economy framework uh, has quite a few different uh, targets and uh, goals that they want to achieve, both short term and long term. Uh, like some, some like you mentioned earlier about reaching the top thirty uh, largest economies in the world. Um, also ranking uh, top twelve, I see uh, in the global competitiveness uh, index. Um, what do you think the challenges uh, are uh, that we will face in implementing this? Um, uh, framework as well as the the plans that come with it. Uh, a lot of our clients, including the ones from uh, outside Malaysia, they would say that Malaysia has very good plans. I think we are not short of uh, announced policies and plans, but clearly we can do a lot better on the execution side of things. So the Madani framework also talks about a whole of country approach to implementing the measures that contain in the framework. And so today, while the current ruling coalition has a two-third majority of the parliament, uh, it would help from investors' point of view to perhaps consider a form of uh, MOU between the government of the and the opposition to basically bring the opposition side in to tackling some of the very difficult structural issues that the country has. For example, tackling subsidies, finding new sources of uh, taxation revenues, uh, relooking at some of the policies to unlock uh, growth potential such as immigration policies, 
uh, or, or expect policies, right? I, I know that uh, YB Rafizi has announced something to that effect, but there are, there's a lot more that can be done, and it would help to basically have the uh, the uh, opposition side uh, on board uh, for a more robust uh, policy decision-making for the country going forward. The other area is to improve the execution capability is when we look at the Madani framework, a, a lot of the goals basically cut across ministries. So even in a company like CGS, when we put down our specific goals, we realize that uh, these things require the collaboration or cooperation between departments or divisions and sometimes with our outside partners as well. So there is no way that one goal can be done by one or two departments. Same here. These goals are lofty goals and they require a lot of coordination between ministries and they also require accountability between the ministries as well. So these goals should not be covered or carried by, for example, just Ministry of Finance. They, they should be carried by uh, the ministries that are affected by that goal. And importantly, the, the accountability should result in some form of uh, mechanism for, for corrective steps to be taken as we measure how we progress and as we take corrective steps even to adjust to changes that take place in the world because we, we don't live in a static world, things move uh, very quickly. So I think in short, basically, the, the Prime Minister's Department, perhaps the PMO, uh, could take the lead to uh, 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 coordinate between ministries, measure progress, and ensure there's accountability and a discipline mechanism to to ensure that we get back on the right path. So I think execution is 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 everything in this case. Yep, yep, agreed. Um, as, you know, like like what you mentioned, uh, very difficult to get uh, different people to work together, uh, even even if it's a close partner, right? Um, I think uh, uh, maybe if you if you can share a little bit about you know what you think are good ways to get everyone um, on the same page and uh, aligned to work towards the same goals. Um, I think we see this a lot in, uh, in all kinds of different plans, uh, whether at the national level, or within CGS or other, other organizations, right? Um, it's always difficult to get everyone to, to really agree to working towards the, the same objective and then and really executing down, down on that path, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a issue that all corporates face, right? And we have competing interests within a corporate, between departments. So there are goals that we can all agree on. And there are some goals that will probably require a lot more discussion and uh, perhaps agree to disagree. And the big boss has to come in and say, okay, guys, uh, this is the path we will take. This is the decision that we will do, we will make. Everyone, please fall in line, and this is for the for the good of the country or for the good of uh, achieving the goal, right? So th there will be a lot of coordination and conversation that needs to take place between the stakeholders. So if 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 that discussion doesn't take place, uh, that would be quite concerning. 
because people are not aligned. They may look at something and may think differently of it, think ill of it, yeah. and that is a that is not a starting point at all. So, uh, very basic stuff, but it's the basic stuff that gets us all entangled, uh, even from the word get go, right? So don't talk about implementing this uh, to the to to towards a goal, right? If you can't even agree on the on the goals at the first instance. I think uh, in my experience, uh, it, it it tends to boil down to trying to trying to identify the commonalities that you share with with the other parties, right? Uh, and then through that commonalities, that's how you you build the the common understanding and the rapport to to get to the same goals. Um, do you do you think there are any other key challenges uh, apart from execution? Uh, do you think the plans are sufficiently um, uh, the strategy or the, the approach in the plans are the right ones to take? Uh, uh, do we have the right resources? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. I think in the past, Malaysia comes up with a lot of plans, some very bold ones. And uh, apart from execution challenges, I would say also there is not enough focus on uh, really going through the process of deciding what Malaysia as a country has in terms of competitive edge vis-a-vis -vis our neighbours, right? So we can't be good at everything. Uh, we can be good with certain things, that, especially the areas that we are already strong in. And so uh, we shouldn't spread ourselves too, too thinly. At the moment, the Madani framework, of course, it's, 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 there's a lot more flesh that needs to uh, be, be given specifically in areas and specific policies. I think we're waiting for that. And so it's important that the details have, have to come out. So the details is where we would like to see the sufficient focus. And focus here could also basically be on areas that we don't want to work on, right? Or we don't want to, we know we're not going to be strong in. No point us putting resources in. So I think that, that needs to be cleared up. So the, the, the area which I mentioned earlier uh, is on fundraising. And if you want to, to grow the economy to, to become top 30, that means we have to grow a lot faster than uh, some of the economies that, that are above us. We are number 37, as I mentioned earlier. So Singapore is above us. Uh, Thailand is above us. Indonesia, of course, is uh, um, way larger because of the population size. And that means we have to be more efficient. So I'd like to see, for example, how can we cut down our time to market in terms of when an investment, a new investment is, is intended to be made by the private sector, whether it's domestic or foreign investor, how can I get into the market, get things going faster than possible right now and faster than our, our neighboring countries? Because everyone is trying to be more efficient, right? Especially like uh, our neighbors here in ASEAN. So that's one. Uh, two, how do we start attracting companies to consider listing on uh, Bursa Malaysia as opposed to some Malaysian companies are actually looking out. Yep. 
Yeah, to, we've met to, many to, already. To, to list outside rather than list on Bursa, yeah. right? Yeah. So we need to stop that, right? Or, or you, you can't stop that, but you, you can tell, basically my point here is that you gotta, you gotta, we have to make ourselves very appealing for uh, these companies to list here. And then how do we get overseas companies in ASEAN to list here? What do you think will, will help uh, uh, kind of incentivize that? Because um, we do see a lot of Malaysian companies wanting to list um, in NASDAQ especially, right? Uh, um, and I guess the main, the main draw of going to a market like that is usually the, the volume and the valuations that you can, you can uh, obtain there, right? So what, what do you think? How, do we, how can we attract the Malaysian companies or the, the foreign companies to list here in Bursa. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there are companies that go to the US or to Hong Kong or to Singapore for, for various and sometimes specific reasons, right? So for a tech company where there are better comparables listed, already listed on NASDAQ, probably makes sense to go there. However, geographically, uh, if you operate within ASEAN or Asia and you go to the US, although you're operating in the same uh, field, but geographically, they may not understand the company or the industry as well as uh, investors here. So they might actually end up giving you potentially a lower valuation, even if you go NASDAQ, right? So the, on that basis, then if we want to make Malaysia a hub for ASEAN listing, then we have to have a better exposure of these uh, industries that we want to attract from the investors based in Malaysia. And there are very large funds here in Malaysia, right? Uh, notably the ones that are government-linked. So they, they need to be given exposure in terms of how to look at a certain industry uh, in, in, the, in the right context, right? Because they, they need to be able to value uh, any companies, especially the new industries, the right way or a fair way so that the list codes will think about I can get a decent or fair valuation listing in Malaysia as opposed to if I come here, people don't understand what my business is. They can't give me a right valuation. I'd rather go Hong Kong or Singapore for that matter, right? So the, the investor education at the institution level must be there and that's where we play a an important role, CGS, because we have a regional uh, expertise. We hold a lot of conferences for our clients. The other is uh, Malaysia actually has a deep pool of uh, retail funds as well, apart from institutional funds that I mentioned earlier. So if you look at our deposit size, our deposit size is about, in Malaysia, is about 500, and 500 odd billion US dollars. That's about 1.4 times of our, our GDP. And if you couple that with the clicks related funds, uh, that, would be a, that would be about 300 odd billion in US dollars terms. So you add the two 500 and 300 billion together, it's actually 2x of uh, the, the, the size of the economy. There's a lot of liquidity here. And, and so this is an area that we feel can be tapped into and investments without too much fiscal pump, pump, pump priming by the government, we could actually get the kind of growth that we want on at the GDP level. Yeah, I think then that, that 
ties back with the whole point on the, the earlier point about about aligning interest, right? Um, if the if the investors, the, the institutional funds, or the retails, um, the guys who are holding those those large amounts of deposits and capital, um, see values a value in a in companies that list here or or uh, investment opportunities in businesses that that are fundraising here, um, then that capital gets gets to be used. The government's fiscal position is uh, not as heavily impacted. Um, at the same time, there's a good good growth story for the for the economy, and uh, hopefully, then uh, translates to uh, productivity gains and and sal- better salaries, right, for people around. Um, on that note, um, uh, what are, since we are we're capital markets related, what are the kind of uh, investment opportunities do you think um, uh, you see arising from uh, from this framework? Um, as an investor, uh, where where should we be look, focusing on? Where where can we make the most uh, or the best return? I think Malaysia is in the in the right place. Uh, there are a lot of things happening around us, right? So I mentioned about geopolitics earlier, uh, which basically trigger a, a multi-year trend. This trend is not a single or two-year trend, right? So we've got offshoring, friendshoring, uh, companies foreign ones diversifying from China, setting up bases in Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, and we're seeing that happening in Malaysia as well, specifically in the semicon industry up north. We are also seeing Chinese companies uh, basically setting up bases in neutral places in order for them to to continue to um, uh, trade uh, with the US. I think the US, uh, from what I understand, they're also not looking at completely zero-rising their their imports or their trade with China. It's about diversifying, right? And especially in critical strategic industries of theirs. So ASEAN is is in uh, the right spot between the two uh, superpowers uh, geographically. And so we should make every effort and intensify our effort to attract these investments from US, Europe, and China to be in Malaysia. So we're see, starting to see that actually. And so the, we expect a lot of uh, fundraising opportunity in this space for the next uh, three to five years. The other area that we uh, see a lot of potential for Malaysia is actually, in, funny enough, in the infrastructure space because uh, although Malaysia actually has one of the best infrastructures in, in the region, uh, barring Singapore. Singapore is a very small place, city-state, right? But uh, as a country, Malaysia is ranks up there in terms of our infrastructure compared to our other con- uh, neighbours. Uh, so we have to look into, for example, our railway networks. Uh, we, we are underinvested in that area. So I know that there's, of course, ECRL. Uh, there's talks of uh, HSR uh, being restarted. I think that should be looked into not merely as a transportation project, but that could bring two markets closely together, potentially even three markets, uh, not just Singapore and Malaysia, but even Thailand up north and, and Malaysia. And of course, Thailand is connected to Indochina. Uh, big opportunity there. And, and in terms of just not about movement of goods, but movement of people. And in that regard, you can, you can uh, basically tap on the, the, the movement of people to bring wages up for Malaysia, between Malaysia and Singapore, just by having this HSR. So it's a big, big opportunity there. The, the, the other opportunity in terms of uh, infrastructure 
is also in, in the alternative energy space. So we all know that there's uh, NETR being announced recently. And this is real because uh, in order to maintain our competitive, competitiveness in the global uh, market, we have to source uh, green energy. And Malaysia has lots of uh, solar resource. Uh, with, uh, with potentially, we could also look at uh, hydropower, uh, biomass, and so these are areas that re require a lot of investment. So, lots of opportunities. And back to my earlier point, fun funding will be very much required to fund a lot of these uh, investments. Okay, um, so a lot more um, better, I guess. Sto storytelling and uh, narrative building in order to excite the Yes, yes. The we are actually quite positive uh, on the outlook for Malaysia uh, and it can be even better if we can get our policy execution right uh, as we've discussed earlier and that will really, really unlock uh, a new wave of uh, foreign investments into Malaysia including portfolio investments uh, There's one area which uh, I've not touched on and it's in the area of uh, portfolio investments from China. Uh, we have good connections with uh, quite a number of uh, Chinese fund managers and these are very big ones. And the uh, fund managers we've met, many of them are very large, as large as the ones in the US or Europe. Uh, for example, last year we brought five of them to Malaysia. Collectively, their assets under management was uh, 8 trillion renminbi huge uh, and many of them in fact none of them have invested in Malaysia or uh, ASEAN for the matter they're very familiar with Vietnam because of uh, offshoring from uh, China by their uh, domestic as well as their foreign investors but ASEAN not so not familiar Malaysia apart from durians <laughs> uh, maybe the occasional holidays in uh, our beaches and all uh, not that familiar especially for the investors there so imagine the kind of uh, uh, upside we can unlock if we can get them to start investing in Malaysia uh, at the at the capital markets level yeah agreed I think uh, and uh, we do share a commonality with them with um, with a fairly large uh, Malaysian Chinese um, uh, group here in, and, in the and country. We are, uh, we are one of their largest uh, trading partners. In fact, ASEAN is China's last, largest uh, trading bloc on the export-import side. And China is, in fact, our largest trading partner for Malaysia. So that's on the non-capital market side of things. And uh, certainly capital markets were nowhere there yet. Um, I think that uh, takes us to the end of the 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 discussion on the Madani economy framework. Um, as a part of the closing, we do have a few standing questions that we usually ask our sure. guest speakers. Sure. Um, the first of which is, if you could invest in any, uh, or start any uh, business or, or industry, um, regardless of current market trends, and assuming you had all the money in the world, what would that uh, investment be and why? That would be in the renewable energy space for me because from the netter that was announced the uh, national uh, energy uh, transition transition uh, roadmap uh, something like 500 billion 
to one trillion ringgit of uh, investments is required uh, in that period. So we need to obviously move away from uh, our reliance on uh, uh, coal and traditional sources of uh, energy to power our country, industries and all. So there's, there's, there's lots of uh, opportunities in terms of uh, tapping onto solar energy, biomass, and uh, even hydropower. So uh, on the pretext that I've got all the money in the world, can raise uh, whatever funds that I need from Bursa and all that, um, that's, 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 uh, that, that is the industry I would go into and with, with uh, good returns as well, I believe. Because a lot of uh, Malaysian companies are actually looking into that area and there's no shortage of uh, buyers of renewable energy. Mm, I think that's a that's a good one to to be in, uh, especially because um, uh, climate change is real, right? We've yes. already moved up uh, one and a half degrees Celsius compared to uh, fifty years ago. Yes. Um, uh, if we don't if we don't slow it down or we don't change the how we do things, uh, the world is probably gonna gonna be too hot to live yes, in yes. in the next thirty years. Um, so. Good to be in that space. Uh, second question. Uh, what do you consider a must-read book or must-listen podcast for those interested in the Malaysian startup landscape? Not I, sure if you... I will talk about a book that I've read some years back and it still uh, leaves a very strong impression on me after so many years. And that's the book by uh, Dan Senor and Saul Singer. On uh, The book is Startup Nation about a particular country in the Middle East where... Uh, where it practices a very unhierarchical environment uh, where creativity and intelligence is highly valued and at the same time uh, there is also uh, a rather aggressive immigration policy that they, they practice which allows for movement of uh, talents into the country and that particular country also uh, practices uh, compulsory military service and in that uh, environment you have uh, basically people being put on the on the same uh, level there are no hierarchies to solve a problem and they use a lot of uh, creativity because resources are limited small country so that in itself uh, fosters the ability f for people to speak up to solve problems on the fly and uh, this is practice in real world in organization at at all levels so we see that happening in startups right today hmm. uh, even in malaysia where uh, people dress casually they don't go by your traditional titles like ceo and whatnot right in some cases and no issue with the the, the freshie speaking to the ceo in a startup uh, environment to, to solve a particularly difficult problem. So at CGS, we, we pr practice that uh, to a large extent because our hierarchies are, are also very much streamlined. We don't have multiple layers of uh, people. And we value solving problems on a team basis and taking the view of the client when we, when we look at problems and not just looking at it from a corporate organizational perspective right so that's 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 very very important uh, for for anyone 
wanting to start a new business. Yeah, you, there, there needs to be certain values that need to be very much inherent in to to ensure there's a high degree of uh, uh, a higher chance of success. Yeah, agreed. I think uh, a kind of um, a value or, or culture of um, questioning or challenging existing norms is important. That's right. right? Yeah. That's right. Um, otherwise, um, you'll just be stuck doing the same the same thing over and over again. Correct, okay. absolutely. Um, uh, last question that we usually ask: um, What advice would you offer to aspiring entrepreneurs in Malaysia? Well, I will use the uh, my company's acronym, uh, or rather, my company's name, as uh, uh, to to talk about that CGS. Right, uh, it's an acronym that stands for C, customer centricity, uh, G, grit, grit as in G R I T. Mm-hmm. S sustainable. So on customer centricity, uh, for a aspiring entrepreneur, never forget that any business that we start or we run is to fix a problem. The moment you can't fix a problem, you are out of business, or you have no business to be in business. Uh, crit. We need to persevere in the face of challenges. Uh, there will be no shortage of them if there are no no challenges then time to move on or uh, that business probably has matured probably going to a steady state and on a decline as sustainable uh, in this in this uh, current environment where uh, ESG is real uh, so being sustainable in, in all that we do for people uh, planet and purpose is, is very important so that uh, we do good to, to the country, do good to the people, and uh, ultimately to the planet. So I think with that, then we we can uh, hold our head high, and we know that we we're doing not just to make money, right? We're doing for the betterment or for the good of uh, the, the wider society. Yeah, good. Uh, thanks for that message. Uh, very heartwarming one. Uh, and and on that note, I think that concludes our. Uh, this session of the uh, Long Game Podcast. Uh, thanks again, Alan, for being so graciously being our uh, guest on uh, today's show. Pleasure.